Let's pray together, and I'll turn it over to these brothers. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful for how kind you are to include us in your work around the world. Uh, these are significant things for us to think about. So, Lord, Lord, I pray that you would teach us much from your word. I pray that your word would, would shape us and mold us. I pray that, in, that light bulbs would go, off, would go off, that insights would be given, that we would be thinking better, oh, I can apply that in my student ministry small group in this way. I can apply that with the, with the, one, with the, with the, with the one person I'm discipling or with the three people I'm discipling. Or as a community group member, I can encourage this, this person like this as we're learning from your word to think very practically about how we can continue in this long line of people at Grace Church that have been making disciples. Because, Lord Jesus, it's really our ambition to make you known and to, and to uh, present you to as many people as possible. So, Lord, lead us and guide us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, I want to start off by just saying thank you. Uh, thank you for the weather that you gave us as we came. We appreciate that. Uh, and my name is... <laughs> My name is Marty. I come from the state of Ohio, so I'm very used to this kind of weather. Actually, what you get today, we will get in a day and a half. Um, And I come from a small town called Youngstown, Ohio, and I'm always grateful and comforted by uh, the passage John starts out in John 146, uh, when someone says of Jesus, can anything good come from Nazareth? And I feel comforted by that when I get to introduce myself from the state of Ohio, uh, because Tony here is from Sydney, Australia, and everybody's infinitely more interested in Sydney, Australia than Youngstown, Ohio. Um, but I also want to say thank you for giving up a Saturday morning. Uh, I, I pass, help pastor a church there in Youngstown, about the same size of Grace Church here. I'm on staff there and oversee apprentices, apprenticeship uh, for young people going into ministry and small group uh, leadership. Um, and I realize it's a big ask to give up several hours on a Saturday morning. Uh, Time is valuable for everyone. So sincerely, thank you for coming uh, out here. I also want to say I'm very comforted to know I'm amongst like-minded people. At our church, whenever we run an event, uh, we're a Baptist church. I take it you're Baptist because no one's sitting in the front row. Um, And so well done. Thank you for making us feel at home in that way as well. Uh, I will say it would be if if you do struggle to see from distance, I think it is worth even just getting up now as Tony comes up here and come up the front uh, because we will be using the whiteboard. Now you can see from in the back, we did some testing. uh, But if you struggle to see, uh, we're going to put some big words up on the board. Everything is on your worksheet. So you're fine where you're at. But Don't hesitate to come up and fill these spots up up front. Um, It is really good to be here. Worked with Matt for the last few months to make this happen. We're really grateful. Uh, And I just want to introduce my role for today. I mean, a lot of the reasons Matt wanted us to come in is to have Tony, who's authored many books and is very influential to me, to Matt, to many pastors and ministry leaders around the world. So he's going to do a good part of the teaching today. But I have two, I would say, one really important role. And my main important role is I'm an interpreter, uh, because Tony doesn't speak English, he speaks Australian. And so there might be times that he says things, and I'll tell if you're bewildered, just put up your hand, look to me, and I will interpret that for you. Uh, And then the other role I have is really, Tony's formulated these ideas, he's pretty much a lifelong Sydney cider, and he's lived there with his family, done ministry there. Um, I'm as I said, an Ohioan. I'm here in the Midwest and practice some of the things that he's going to talk about for a number of years in my own personal ministry, but also for the last 12 years at our church where we've tried to really take what we're learning today and put it into practice. So part of my role is just to give you examples of things we do here in the United States to try to flesh out in context what it is to mean to be a disciple-making disciple uh, in all that you do personally and all that you do in your church-wide ministries. So that's my role here today. Uh, so again, thank you very much. I'm going to have Tony come up here and we'll start our day. Thanks very much, Marty. Um, I, I don't know what all this talk is about me having an accent. I, I don't really know what you're talking about. You, you folks all have accents, but I've, um, apparently I have one as far as you're concerned. And sometimes uh, being an Australian does get me into trouble in the States because we know your culture pretty well. We watch all your TV. We, you send everything to it. Thank you so much for sending all that to us down in Australia. Um, every now and then I get into trouble. I was once preaching in a church in East Texas and, uh, and so this was Dallas Cowboys country, right? So 
where, this, where, where that was a, it was a good Baptist church, but the, cow, the cowboy's religion was, was, a, was a close second to following Jesus when it came, comes to this church. Right? You know what things are like in Texas. And I thought I would kind of ingratiate myself to the congregation by talking about the Dallas Cowboys, and I wanted to make a reference to their cheerleading kind of squad, who are apparently called the Dallas Cowgirls, right? But I didn't call them the Dallas Cowgirls. I kind of got my wires crossed. I referred to them as the Dallas Call Girls. And uh, that was the reaction. Some of you went, oh, that was the reaction in the congregation. And I, and I thought I was worrying that some of them were carrying and I was going to be in trouble. But um, thankfully they weren't. Thankfully they forgave me and I, and I continued on. So it's a great joy to be with you. And please forgive me if I make any terrible clangers like that in the course of today. Uh, what we're going to be doing today is digging into this concept of disciple, this word that um, we use so much. It's in your mission statement. It's in our mission statement of the church that I go to in Sydney. Our mission statement is to make disciples of Jesus in ever-increasing number. That's our mission statement. And um, it's used in mission statements all over the world. We talk about discipling, discipleship disciple-making, we have disciple pastors discipleship pastors. I think Marty was a discipleship pastor, whatever that is, um, for some period of time. And it, like many of the words we use as Christians, uh, it's easy to kind of just use this word, fling it around all over the place, and, and not often dig into what it actually means and what it's about. So that's where we're going to start this morning. We're going to start thinking about what is actually a disciple, this cliched kind of Christian word we use a lot. Let's see if we can understand what it actually is. Now, I'm going to start by getting you to try and answer that question. So just around your tables, among yourselves, I just want you to talk for just a couple of minutes. If you had to define, just in one sentence or a few words, what is a disciple, what would you say? See if you can come up with a little short couple of words, maybe no longer than a sentence. You can't have longer than a sentence. Come up with a little definition among yourselves as to what you think. If you had to explain to someone the essence of what it is to be a disciple, what would you say? And part two, sort of advanced question, if you want to get to that question, if you were going to go somewhere in the Bible to try to explain that, where would you go? So what is a disciple? And if you had to go in the Bible to somewhere explain it, where would you go? Just talk among yourselves for a minute or two. And I'll just get a few answers back from the floor. But just talk about yourself. What is a disciple? What do you think? Okay, let's, let's draw it back together again. What do you think a disciple is? Can I ask someone from a t- one of the tables just to throw your hand up and big voice? Re- thank you. What did, what did you guys come up with? A follower. A disciple is a follower. Anyone else have follower in their definition? Oh, yeah, good number of you. Um, yeah, okay, follow-up. No, that's not what a disciple is. It's not. It's not. Hmm? An example. So a disciple is someone who provides an example or... Oh, can I give an example of why it's not a follower? Yeah, yeah, I will in a second. Any, any other... Any other a student, okay? A disciple is a student. Anybody have anything like that in their definition? Oh, one or two, a couple. Yeah, great. Any other, anyone else want to put Yeah, what did you have in your definition? Apprentice. Apprentice. Ooh, I like this. I like it when people make my, my best points for me in advance. That's terrible. So thank you so much. Apprentice. Yep. Follower of Jesus. Follower of Jesus. I, I was kind of being a bit mean to our brother here by saying, no, it's not. It's connected with being a disciple, but it's the most common definition of disciple that people give, a follower of Jesus, and it's not quite accurate, and I'll explain why in a minute. So thank you. Any other things that people had? Yes, sister. A mentor. So a disciple could be someone who mentors somebody else. Yeah, excellent. Any other things, any other key concepts that you had? Like that's, that's most of them. Okay, great. Any places in the Bible you thought we should really go to to figure out what a disciple is? Matthew 28, absolutely, we're going to get there. It's on your sheet. That's right, that's coming. Any other places in the Bible that you think are important for learning what a disciple is, brother? 1 Peter 3.15, which talks about make a defense 
So you have an activity there of somebody sharing and explaining and answering. So you have the activity of what's going on, the kind of thing that a disciple would do. Absolutely. Very good. Any other parts of the Bible that people particularly thought of? Yeah, yeah. So you've got that that metaphor of fruit being produced. So you'd like to think the disciple in some way becomes like Jesus, produces fruit that is of a certain nature. In other words, it issues in a kind of life. That's a really interesting part of the definition that as a disciple has some kind of life or product or activity that comes out in their life that's part of what it means to be a disciple. Very good. Yes, Fred. Yes, Joshua 1.8, which is about meditating on the law of the Lord day and night. Oh, yes, we'll come back to that. So what, the, what it happens in Joshua 1.8 is that Moses exhorts, this is, what, this is what Joshua should be doing, mulling over, murmuring over, meditating over the word day and night in order to be able to keep and do what it says. We'll come to that in a moment. That's a great insight. Yes. 2 Timothy 2.2, you're sort of testing my kind of navigator Bible verse memory, aren't you? 2 Timothy 2.2, that's um, Paul passing on the gospel to faithful men who will also in turn pass it on to others, right, and teach it. So that's a sense of reproduction that's happening where people teach people who teach people. Yeah, we're going to talk about that a lot. You guys know everything already. I'm not sure I'm needed for the rest of the day. This is, this is great. Um, what is a disciple? Let's start with what the word itself means. And we had two excellent insights from brothers here. The word disciple in the New Testament, it was an ordinary everyday word. For us, it's kind of a Christian word. Not many people use this word apart from Christians, right? Rarely. You might talk about disciples of a cult leader, perhaps, but generally it's Christians who use this language all the time. So we think it's a Christian word. It's just an ordinary word in the time of the Greek New Testament. It's the word that means something like student or apprentice. I'll read you a definition from a a dictionary uh, of the New Testament. It's one who engages in learning through instruction from another, a pupil, a student, an apprentice. One who is constantly associated with someone who is a teacher and has a particular set of views. So an adherent or someone who is devoted to a particular teacher. So in the time of the New Testament, if you use the word disciple, uh, which in Greek is the word mathetes, if you use that word in that time, you were saying that you were a student or, a, or an adherent of somebody, that you decided to learn from someone and be their apprentice and become more like them. And this is why I was a little bit sharp about the word follow. It doesn't mean follow. It means to learn, to come to understand something through a teacher and to put that teaching into effect in your lives, to become like your teacher. Where does following fit in? Well, you can't learn from a teacher if you don't follow them around. They didn't have the internet. Um, That's not how they did it. They followed their teachers around. So when Jesus says, come, follow me, he's saying, come and learn, come with me, physically come with me, sit under my teaching, look at what I do, hear what I say, become like me, be my student, be my apprentice. So following is the means by which, in a sense, you become an apprentice as you learn. But it's not the essence of it is not following, it's learning. And that's worth understanding that distinction, okay? Now, a few quick uh, Bible verses there that you have on your sheet from Luke chapter 6, which kind of expresses this, okay? Let's just put the word apprentice in there instead. An apprentice is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. See, that's, see what's been happening there. That's what a disciple is. He's an apprentice, or she's an apprentice, who learns to be like his teacher. So Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him in John 8, if you abide in my word, you are truly my apprentices, my students. And that makes sense, right? If you're going to say that you're my apprentices, then you're going to stick with me, listen to my teaching believe my teaching, abide in my teaching, and that teaching will set you free, he says to them. Uh, And finally, in Luke 14, so therefore any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my apprentice. 
Becoming an apprentice of Jesus, as we'll see in just a moment, was a particularly radical thing to do. It required you to leave behind your old teachers and your old masters and apprentice yourself to Jesus. You had to kind of make a a quite definite and quite radical and life-changing decision to be an apprentice of his as opposed to perhaps where you used to be. And we'll see that as we come to the most famous passage on apprenticeship, that is discipleship, which is Matthew 28. Now it's worth opening your Bibles if you have them to Matthew 28. We're just going to stick in Matthew 28 for a couple of minutes because it's the climax of Matthew's gospel. It's Jesus' last words to his disciples in Matthew's gospel, to his apprentices. And it tells us a lot about the commission we have to make apprentices. Now, I'm just going to keep dropping the word apprentice in as often as I can, just to get you to realise that's what's happening, to make students, to make learners. That's what Jesus is, is urging his learners, his apprentices, to do. And as he does so, he teaches us a lot about what an apprentice of Jesus is like and how apprentices of Jesus are made. So let's just read it together. We have the 11 apprentices heading off to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them in verse 16 of Matthew 28, Matthew 28, 16. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Love those little words, but some doubted. Would you have been one of those who fell down and worshipped or one of those who said, what on earth is going on here? I don't get this at all. I suspect I'd have been in that latter category. I love the fact that some of the apprentices still were doubting at this point. How human of them. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And the famous words, go therefore and make apprentices of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, we could spend a lot of time in Matthew 28. Wonderful, wonderful passage. I just want to point out a few brief things here clarify what it means to be an apprentice of Jesus and how apprentices are made. Um, The first one is, of course, that it is addressed to the apprentices of Jesus. So he's giving his apprentices, he's teaching them something, his final bit of teaching to them before he departs. So it's very significant. And his first words to them are, all authority in heaven and on earth is given or has been given to me. Now, there's one biblical word that you could put in in place of that whole sentence. And it's the word Christ. That's what a Christ is. Some of you may may not know this, I'll just clarify it. We we tend to think of Christ as kind of like Jesus' surname, almost like his letters were addressed to Mr. J. Christ, care of Nazareth. That's not what Christ means. Christ is a title. It's an Old Testament title. It's the same title as Messiah. Messiah. Messiah in Hebrew, Christ in Greek. And it's the promise that one day God would send a king, a worldwide majestic ruling king in the line of David, just like King David, but greater, 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 who would rule over all peoples for all time. This is the promise of 2 Samuel 7. It's what Psalm 2 talks about when it talks about God's anointed, his son, his Christ who sits on his throne in Zion, who laughs at the plots of the nations, who dashes their, their, their plots to pieces, the, the majestic, slightly terrifying ruler of all who you need to make peace with or he will destroy you. But if you do make peace with him, if you do kiss the son, you can take refuge in him. That's Psalm 2. There's a, there's a huge Old Testament expectation that God would send his Messiah, his anointed king, to sit on the throne of David for all time. And Jesus is saying, that's me. I am the Christ. By rising from the dead, I've I've confirmed and been established as this majestic ruling king of all the world. And this is hugely important because this then determines the next few verses. It all flows out of the fact that Jesus is the king. Because he says, because I am king of all nations, therefore, because I'm the one who rules everyone, go and make apprentices of all nations. Now, we just say that very quickly and are very familiar with that, aren't we? Go and make disciples of all nations, by which we kind of think, go to, go to Tanzania, go to Peru, 
go to the world and make disciples of all those nations. But of course, that's not what the original apprentices were hearing. They're Jews, remember. They're in Israel. Earlier in Matthew's gospel, they'd been sent out to the lost tribes of Israel. Go, said Jesus, go and preach the gospel to, throughout Israel in Matthew chapter 10, and off they'd gone. But now he's saying to them, you're not just going to go and make apprentices within Israel, which is probably what they expected. You're going to go to the enemy. You're going to go to the people who you regard as the dogs. That's how Jews would refer to Gentiles, to the nations. You're going to go to those who are without hope, without God, the pagans, the lost ones, those people. You're going to them to make apprentices. Hugely radical thing for Jesus to say to his apprentices at this point. But the next lot of apprentices you're going to make aren't actually going to be just among your own family or tribe or nation, but it's going to be the nations. And it's because, friends, the nations, that's the entire scope of God's world and the people of the world, the nations are whom God promised Abraham that he would bless through Abraham's offspring. God's plan was always to send the gospel out to the nations. Uh, as it says in your uh, mission statement, uh, across the street and around the world, uh, that's the scope of the disciple-making, the apprentice-making commission of Jesus. And it's because those nations are lost. It's because they're facing judgment. When the Christ comes in all majesty, when he comes to judge at the end of time, at the end of the age, all those nations are under his judgment and on the wrong side of his judgment. And so the call to go and make apprentices of the nations is a call to bring salvation to the nations so that they might be reconciled to the Christ, the King, and be his apprentices and not his enemies and therefore be destroyed. You see what's being said? It's a huge vision to go and make apprentices of the nations. Well, then he goes on to talk about how those apprentices get made in the next famous verses, right? And there are three things to notice here about how apprentices are made that tell us what an apprentice is, an apprentice of Jesus is. The first one is to be baptised, baptising them in the name of the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, this may shock you, but I'm not a Baptist. I'm an Anglican, one of those evangelical, reformed kind of John Stott, A.I. Packer, good Anglicans. I'm one of the okay Anglicans, not those horrible liberal ones that you kind of meet quite often here in the United States, okay? So I'm, I'm okay, but I'm not a Baptist. And it's interesting how Christians have always argued about baptism, what baptism means, etc., etc., etc. I think everybody, regardless of the different takes you have on baptism, can agree on one thing. I think we all do agree on this. That what baptism stands for is initiation. It's when you start your life with Jesus, right? In fact, you Baptists, that's part of the whole point. You're saying we should baptise someone when they put their faith in Jesus and they can make that decision for themselves. I'm in, preach it. Okay, here I am. Um, and that's what baptism is here. It's the point of initiation. It's the point where you leave behind your old life and embrace the new. And that's actually what the symbol of baptism symbolises. You go down into the water and you come up washed clean, a whole new person, a different person. As Paul says in Colossians, uh, you're baptised into his death and then you rise to a new life. This is, you, I'm, I think I might become a Baptist. This is great. You get immersed in the water and you come out the other side and you're a new person. This is what baptism is. It talks about, it's a symbol of initiation into Christ. Becoming an apprentice of Jesus is this radical step where you cast your old life behind, you die to what was, was previous, and you start a whole new life as his apprentice, learning from him. So it starts with a, a radical repentance, a radical change of life. It continues on then in learning to obey all his commandments. That's the second one. You make disciples or, or apprentices by teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you to the ends of the age. Uh, to become an apprentice of you, this makes sense, right? If you're going to be an apprentice, you've got to learn everything that your master teaches and do it. Simple as that. It's not just learn his commandments. It's learn to keep his or observe his commandments, to obey his commandments. Not enough just to know his commandments. You've got to obey his commandments. So an apprentice of Jesus makes a radical step to leave everything behind and learn from him and then spends their life learning to obey all of his commandments. And it happens until the end of the age, says Matthew. In other words, 
it's a, it's a, a process, a learning process that has an end point. Jesus is returning at the end of the age and he's with them this whole time between now and the end of the age by his spirit. He's with us as we learn to obey and observe and teach all his commandments. Now you could summarise it, I guess, a bit like this. A disciple is someone who takes the radical step of becoming apprenticed to Jesus Christ and who thus learns to live out the truth of Jesus Christ in every facet of life until the end of the age. Do you want me to give you that again? You've got a a space to write that down, haven't you? A disciple is someone who takes the radical, life-changing step of becoming apprenticed to Jesus Christ and who thus learns to live the truth of Jesus Christ in every facet of life until the end of the age. Now, at this point, I'm going to introduce this little diagram that we're going to use right throughout today to kind of give you a model and a set of concepts and a language to think about what it means to be a disciple, how to make disciples, and how disciple-making, apprentice-making, fits into all the things you're doing here at Grace Church, how it's the essence of all that you're doing at Grace Church. Now, um, let's say this arrow represents kind of the big picture of the world and its history. What do we see in Matthew 18? We see that you have the nations over here, and the nations are lost. The nations are in darkness. The nations are facing God's judgment. You have Jesus over here. Jesus is now risen to sit at God's right hand. Jesus, who is the king of the world, the one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given. And the history of the world is heading to the point, to the end of our age, when that kingship of the Lord Jesus is displayed for all to see, when he returns to judge and to save, to separate the sheep from the goats, to bring in a whole new creation in which he is king. That's the kind of picture Matthew 28 is painting of the nations who need to be apprenticed to Jesus, of Jesus' authority over all the world. He's been risen, he's risen, he's about to ascend to God's right hand. And what's their task? Here's the cross of Jesus, which is kind of at this crucial moment. He's, he's died and risen. The task is to see the nations become apprentices, to make this radical step from darkness and lostness, rebellion against God, hatred of God, enmity towards God, to being an apprentice of Jesus Christ, someone who's left the old old behind. This really is the baptism moment. It's the moment of repentance, the moment of change, the moment of putting your faith in Jesus. And becoming an apprentice, becoming a whole new person who, as life goes on, is learning to obey and learn all of Jesus' commandments, become more and more like the Lord Jesus, to become a... That's what an apprentice does, right? An apprentice learns to become like his teacher. An apprentice who has not learned anything and is exactly the same after five years in an apprenticeship, it's kind of a dud apprentice, right? You'd want an apprentice who's going to actually, by the time they're getting towards the end of their apprenticeship, kind of looks like their master, can do a lot of the things the master does, wields a hammer like the master, knows how to cut a piece of wood like the master. That's what a Christian apprentice does learns to obey, to keep all the commandments of Jesus until the end of the age, until the, end of, until the time that Jesus comes. Now, we'll be using this kind of diagram as the day goes on to talk about all kinds of aspects of what it means to be and to make apprentices. But for the time being, the really important thing is to recognise that Jesus is king, the Lord, the ruler of all, and that he calls his apprentices, those who are following him, who have repented and been baptised and are following him and seeking to live his way, to do so with others, to make other apprentices. Let me ask you this. Of all those commandments of Jesus that we're supposed to learn and to keep, which is the most important one, do you think? Rhetorical question. Anyone think, which is the most important command of Jesus for us to learn to keep? What do you think? So his summary of the law, love the Lord your God. When the teacher asked him what are the, what's, the great, what's the greatest commandment, he says there are two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbour as yourself. 
Anyone want any advance on that? That's a great answer. Yeah, okay. Let's just say love of God and love of neighbour. But a new commandment I give to you, says Jesus, that you love one another. And it's interesting, as a, as a picture of what the apprenticeship life is like, that is what it is that grows in someone as they move further and further towards the Lord Jesus Christ, learning to become like him in our lives, love is, is a wonderful summary or capstone of what that life, that apprenticeship is like. It's an apprenticeship in love, in loving God, in loving neighbour. The further that someone is in this direction, the further they're becoming more like the Lord Jesus as an apprentice, this is what you see. You certainly see knowledge, you see understanding, you see the ability to do various things, but the greatest of these, Paul says, remember, the greatest of these is love. This is a very important point that we'll come back to as the day goes on. You can recognise a mature, Jesus-like apprentice through their love. That's how you'll know that, that you're my apprentices, because you love, says Jesus, because that's what Jesus came to do. The great king came, the king, the king who was at God's right hand, the king who didn't have to come, he emptied himself and became a man and was obedient even unto death on a cross so that he might bring many sons, might bring us all to his glory so that he could be exalted as the Lord and King, and that every knee should bow to him, it was all a great majestic act of love. Very important to bear that in mind. I'll come back to that as the day goes along. That the kind of capstone of apprenticeship is love. Okay. Now, I've said quite a bit here, summarised what is an apprentice, given you a definition. We're going to have a question time, so put your questions in, but does anybody just have any quick clarificatory questions um, from what I've said going on. Anything that I've missed out that you think is absolutely critical and you're shocked that I haven't said or anything that just doesn't make sense that just to clarify for the room before we move on. Anybody? Making sense so far? Brother? You mentioned baptism pretty much right away. How important do you see that in the whole discipleship process? Um, I think I'd have to say that the moment of conversion... The moment of radical repentance where you leave the old behind and you understand that that's what you're doing, that the old is gone, the new has come. It's no longer I that live, it's Christ that lives in me. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14, one has died for all, we believe, therefore all have died. And, and he died so that those who do live can no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again. It's absolutely critical, however you symbolise it, whatever your particular practice is for marking that moment, um, and different churches, even different Baptist churches, let alone Christian churches, mark that moment, symbolise it, enact it in different sorts of ways, um, and you guys do it the way you guys do it here. Let me encourage you, do that. But the really critical thing is that we don't lose the sense that this moment is a radical moment. It's, it's a huge step. It's, it's a passing from darkness to life, from death to resurrected life. You can't minimise the, the bigness of what that is, and that's why baptism is the kind of symbol it is, I think. Um, I hope that helps. So I'm not saying you need to bring baptism into the foreground, that the secret to solving your discipleship woes is to have a bigger focus on baptism. It may or may not be. The big focus needs to be on preaching a gospel that sees people make this statement, make this move, however you do it. But thank you, that's a great question. Anything else before we move on? Largely with me so far? All okay so far? Excellent, all right. Uh, let's move on to who makes these apprentices. So given we've now clarified in our mind what an apprentice is, we're now going to talk about who makes apprentices and then how apprentices are made and then what all that means for you guys here at Grace Church. That's the shape of the day. So who makes them? How does this all happen? And how do they make them? And then what would that mean for you as a small group leader, as an elder, as a lay person in the congregation, as someone who has a family that you're wanting to make apprentices of? What does it mean for all these different things? We'll come to that as we go along. Uh, now, I'm just doing a quick double check of where we're up to here. Oh, yeah, we're doing well. Okay. Um, who makes apprentices? 
Of course, the, um, the command here in Matthew 28 that we've just been looking at is a command to make. It's not just a command to be one. Um, it's a command given to the original apprentices. Now, here's the big question. Do you think this command, the command to make apprentices of the nations, is this something for the apostles? So remember those 11 apprentices who were there, they were the apostles. They were the, sort of the original 12, now sadly reduced to 11. Is it a command for them? Is it like a, a commission for the apostles and leaders of the church to go and make disciples, to go and make apprentices? Or is it a commission for every apprentice to go and make apprentices? Interesting question, isn't it? I just want you to discuss among your table just for a minute or two. If you had to make a call about it, what would you say? Is, this, is Matthew 28, this commission, is it a commission really mainly for the big guys, the apostles, to sort of launch off into the book of Acts? Or is it a, is it a commission and a command for every apprentice? And of course, I'm going to ask you, why? Why do you think that? So talk about what you among the table. Who do you think? Do you think it's for all of us, this commission? Or mainly for those who are kind of really commissioned? Apostles, preachers, leaders? And why would you give your answer to that question? What are your reasons? Have a quick talk among yourselves about that one, and we'll get some feedback. I'll just give you about three minutes. Off you go. Okay. Who wants to kind of just share the kind of idea that came out at your table? The dominant, the dominant ideas, the reasons, who this is really for and why you think that? Who wants to... Maybe a table that hasn't shared yet uh, their wisdom with the rest of us. Yes, sister. Very good. Thank you so much. So initially, yeah, she, Jesus is just talking to 11. Uh, he's saying, obey all that I have commanded you. And what is his last great final command? Go out to the nations and make apprentices. So it seems obvious that if the apprentices are going to keep all the commands of Jesus, if that's what you're supposed to teach them to do, why would this last greatest, most not most wonderful, but the last huge command be, be the one command you exclude from apprentices coming to learn? That's excellent. Any other thoughts that people had about this? Yes, brother. Yeah, very, very good. So it, it wasn't just for the rest of your lives, I'll be with you, but for the rest of the age. Uh, there's a sense that this is going to be a long-term process uh, and it's in fact exactly what happens. You see it happening that in Acts it starts sort of reverberating out from Jerusalem. And even in Acts you, you see the process happening of, of it happening, of being, churches being planted and things starting to snowball and reproduce. This is not going to be just in their lifetime. This is going to be an age long, however it is, until Jesus returns. Great point, brother. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Yes. Yeah, very helpful. Um, because there's two, there's two um, facets to what you're saying there. It's beyond the 12 in, in the sense that it's got to be beyond their lifetime. It's got to be there's more than 12, 11, sorry, 11 people plus the one they replace, good old Matthias, where we get our name from, who, who gets in, number 12, just say an important guy, Matthias. It's not just those guys who do it. It's, it's all who they teach and all who they teach. It obviously is a perpetuating thing. But our sisters pointed out that it also picks up that biblical theme that the word of God is shared and taught not just by the teachers and, the, and those who are given a particular role, but by parents. And it's a very strong Old Testament theme, actually. If you want to look into the theme of kind of every member ministry, of all people being involved in the ministry of God in the Old Testament, you don't get many hints in the Old Testament. It was different. But a little hint you get is the role of parents all the way back into Deuteronomy, that, you know, take this, thing, this word that I've given you, bind it on your doorposts and teach it to your children. And when your children ask you, what are we doing here? And what are, that, what are those stones for? And what's going on? You teach and explain to your children. And of course, the wisdom literature, Proverbs, is really, a, really instruction from a father to a son. And so, yeah, very helpful stuff. Um, yeah, any, is anyone going to kind of, any, any bold radicals who want to say, no, it was just the eleven? tough to put your hand up, isn't it, in this group and say it is, yeah. It's, it's, some people in history have argued this, and more than, more than that they've argued it, what's happened in history, in Christian history, is that that's what we've practised as Christian churches in many respects. Uh, there's a very long history of what you can call clericalism in Christian, certainly in where we live in Australia, that's been part of our history, 
I've been visiting you guys for a long time back and forth here in the States, visiting lots of churches, and it's a problem you have as well. That is that as Christians, we can be very content uh, to leave the real ministry of the gospel and the making disciples to the people we pay to do it, uh, to those guys. I'm very glad that they do it. They get trained to do it. We pay them to do it. Why are they asking us to do it? That's their job. And the sense that the pastor, the priest, the professional is the person who really is responsible for doing this stuff. And kind of we cheer from the sidelines, you know, we cut the oranges at half time and, and we do stuff to kind of busy around. But the idea that we would actually be making disciples alongside our pastors and following their example, for many churches that's not a reality. I've spoken at a lot of churches uh, and I've spoken to a lot of pastors who yearn and long for their people to make disciples and apprentices with them and find that their people have a different agenda in their lives, a different set of priorities. That the making of apprentices of Jesus Christ, I get that the pastor's on about that. What else would he be on about? That's his job. But I've got other stuff to do in my life and I'll leave that mostly to him and look, I'll generously pay him some money so he can do it. But the theory that it's all of our jobs, that we're all involved in this task together, um, for many churches, that's a theory that isn't really seen in practice. And one of the things that we're going to be talking about the rest of today is that what does it look like for you guys to see that in practice? For, the, for what you've all just said you agree with, I think, it's all of us, what does it look like? And how can we do this together? That's what we're going to be looking at. To kind of give you a sense of how it works and to give you some other biblical kind of picture of how it works, I just want you to look briefly at the verses in Colossians uh, that I've got there on the on your handout about who makes disciples. Because Colossians, wonderful book, Colossians, uh, and it draws out these ideas really clearly in a very helpful way. Because there's no doubt that when it comes to the, the making of apprentices of Jesus, the preaching of the gospel and seeing people converted and grown, that the apostles, the leaders, the pastors, the evangelists, they have a big role to play. And so in Colossians, you see the work of Epaphras, good old Epaphras. I would have liked to have known Epaphras. He seems like he was a good guy. Um, and he was the one who brought the gospel to the Colossians in Colossians 1, 6 and 7. You heard that word of truth, he said, when the gospel came to you, bore fruit among you, the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. And likewise, Paul, it's, this is kind of like Paul's mission statement. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, him we proclaim, says Paul, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now just note that, that verse. That's a great Bible verse to have on your wall, that one, uh, as a mission statement, not just for pastors, but for all of us. But notice that it's a proclamatory ministry. He's telling everybody about Christ. In other words, he's telling everybody this. The Christ has come and risen to his throne and now offers salvation, now offers forgiveness and a whole new life as his apprentice, not just to Jews but to the, whole, to the, to the world. Paul goes around to the nations fulfilling this exact commission, teaching them that the Christ is the one who's come and then he, as he proclaims Christ, he keeps proclaiming him to everyone <clears throat> so that they might grow and become mature in Christ. And notice what he does. He teaches and he admonishes or warns, admonishes. So he instructs them and he also exhorts them personally about what they should be doing. And he does that with all wisdom. That is, he does it in a variety of ways that teach every single person. And the focus of this verse, of Paul's mission statement, is that there's me. He actually says we. That's kind of me, Timothy, probably Epaphras. This is what we do. We go around proclaiming this because we, see, we want to see every single one of you Keep moving forward and growing to maturity in Christ to become more like Jesus. But go across and we'll look at your paper um, at the next verse, which is in Colossians 3. In Colossians 3, he's now talking to the Colossians themselves. He's urging them in verse 12 to put on a, a new lifestyle of compassion and kindness and humility and meekness, that is, to grow in, in, the, in the likeness of Jesus. All those things are a great description of Jesus, aren't they? And particularly notice in verse 14, and above all these things put on love, love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love is the, 
kind of capstone of it all. And then he says in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, possibly among you richly, but in you guys. Let the word of Christ be in your congregation, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Really striking when you put those two verses next to each other like that. They're almost identical. What was Paul to do? Teach and proclaim Christ and admonish with all wisdom so that they'd become mature in Christ. What are the Colossians to do with one another? Teach one another, admonish one another in all wisdom, with thankfulness in your hearts, in everything you do, so that in the end, everything you do in word or deed will be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's virtually an identical mission statement. The Colossians' mission statement for themselves, the one Paul was giving them here, and the one that he had for himself. What I have done with you, you do with each other, he's saying. And you see it over in chapter 4 as well. Not with respect to each other, but with respect to outsiders. Continue steadfastly, it says, he says in prayer in chapter 4, verse 2, being watchful with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear, and which is how I ought to speak. So please pray that the door opens and I get out and can proclaim the word. But then he says to them, you walk in wisdom towards those outside, um, towards the outsiders. Paul's inside. He's stuck there. You're out there among the outside. You're outside. You're talking with people. You're mixing with people making the best use of the time. You've got the opportunity in a way that I don't at present. I'm stuck in here. You're out with people. Let your word, uh, most translations put the word speech there. You've got speech or message or conversation is in your translation, something like that. It's just the same word that Paul used earlier in verse 4 when he says he's hoping that there'd be a door open for the word. Here he's saying to them, let your word your message, always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. And so you've got the imprisoned kind of proclaimer, and you've got the everyday conversationalists doing exactly the same thing, bringing the word, the word about Christ, to other people, so that other people might come to know who this Christ is and become his apprentice. And this picture, the picture of the importance of pastors, proclaimers, preachers, evangelists, very important, teachers, and also the role of every apprentice in learning to not only become an apprentice of Jesus Christ, but as they do so, to obey that great commission command to make apprentices of other people. In other words, we need to modify our definition a little bit, I think, don't we? Because a disciple is not only someone who takes the radical step of becoming apprentice to the risen Jesus Christ, and who thus learns to live and keep all the commands of Jesus Christ, it's also someone who keeps his commission, his command to make apprentices of other people. We're going to go back to our diagram. To be an apprentice of Jesus Christ is constantly to be moving in this direction, to be moving to the right, if you want to put it that way, it's... towards where Jesus is. An apprentice continues to learn more and more what it means to live like Jesus. But the more that an apprentice heads in this direction, the more that they grow in love, the more they become like Jesus, okay? So what does a loving apprentice do? A loving apprentice looks to the left. The more you grow like Jesus, the more you become his apprentice, the more you want to be like him, and fulfill his mission, the more you realise it's not about me, it's about all these other people all around me. It's about the new Christian who needs someone alongside them. It's like like my neighbour who is as far away from Christianity as you can possibly imagine, who's completely unchurched, knows nothing, and is completely lost. It, It might be about the person who kind of is a bit closer to Christianity, maybe who even comes to church semi-regularly but isn't a Christian, hasn't yet made the radical step of becoming an apprentice of Jesus. 
So be an apprentice of Jesus is not only to keep wanting to move towards this way all the time, move right, become more like Jesus. As you do that, you want to keep looking back to your left, to all the people all around you, in your street, in your house, of course, in your family, in your neighbourhood, in this whole city of, what, 600,000 people or something. How many of the 600,000 people in this city are still in this category, still living in darkness, still not knowing the Lord Jesus Christ, still facing his death and judgment? How many people are there? I don't know. Let's be generous and say it was half, that Des Moines was half Christian. Wouldn't that be a kind of a generous, perhaps, percentage, would you say? Certainly in Sydney, where I am, I'll give you a picture. In Sydney, where I am, the number of people who are here would represent approximately 4% of the population. Approximately. We're a city of 4.5 million people. So do the sums. Let's be really generous and say it's 4%. And let's say it's 5 million people because that's easier to add up. So that's... I can't add it up. I can. It means there's only two or three hundred thousand Christians in, in Sydney. And it means there's kind of 4.3 million lost souls all around us. That's a mission statement. That's a change in the whole way we think about what our lives are for. We think our lives are to become more like Jesus. They are. As we become more like Jesus, as we love people more, and as we perceive and grow and understand the message of Jesus, we see that There's all these people to our left, all around us, who need encouragement if they're Christians, who are struggling as Christians, or who aren't Christians at all, who haven't yet become apprentices of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so a true apprentice of Jesus, someone who started to grow in their understanding of what it means to be an apprentice, longs to engage in the mission that Jesus himself came to do, to seek and to save the lost. That's why I came, said Jesus. And that's what he commissions his disciples to do. Go out to the nations, to the lost, to seek and save them. An apprentice of Jesus is always growing, moving, straining towards the right, longing to become more like our teacher, our Lord, our master. The more we do that, the more we realise we've got to look at all the people all around us. Always looking left. And so here's a mission statement for an apprentice to seek to move everybody around you to the right, one step at a time. We'll talk about this as we go along today. A great mission statement for every apprentice is to seek to move everybody in your life to the right, one step at a time. Now, this is a really helpful way to to put the mission of the Christian and the apprentice. Uh, Notice it's it's not every single person in the world or every single person in in the church. It's the people who are around you who you know. You can't help every person, but there are some people who you can help, the people God has brought into your life, the people you live with, the people who are just either side of you or in your street. Who else is going to reach those people who are just either side of you in your street, if not you? That's why God put you there. The person you're sitting next to on Sunday, God put you next to them, put him next to you or her next to you. How can you move that person one step to the right? How can you encourage them in some way to trust the Lord Jesus a little more? How can you give them hope in the midst of the struggles they're having? How can you answer their questions and the struggles and the doubts they have? How can you explain to them if they're a long-term or even short-term person who's been coming to church but is not yet Christian, how can you explain to them the gospel or answer their questions about the gospel? It's, you're not responsible for everybody. In one sense, Pastor Phil, Pastor Matt... The other members of the staff here, their role is to be responsible for everybody. That's why we pray for them. They want to look over the whole flock and make sure the whole flock is cared for. That's that's their main job. But your role is not everybody. Your role is the people on your table, the people in your pew, the people in your street. It's to move everybody around you, all the people you're in contact with, towards Jesus one step at a time. And notice I said one step at a time. If I said to you, your job was to take the, the person way back down here is your neighbour, who is completely unchurched, a bit hostile, to be honest, and, no, and zero interest in the gospel, your job, 
or else you're a failure. Your job is to get them all the way to here, to be a mature, loving Disney. Well, I, want to do, I want you to do it by the end of the week. Okay? It's, it's not like that. Your job is just to see if you can help them take one step forward. One step forward for this person might be what? What would be one step forward for the person who's your neighbour, who knows absolutely nothing about the Lord Jesus, but who has, happens to be living next to you, who's an apprentice of Jesus Christ? What would one step forward be? Get to know them. Say hello. Go to the back fence and actually introduce yourself. There's one step. They now know an apprentice of Jesus. And because you're living like Jesus and exemplifying Jesus as much as you can in your own imperfect way, they're now in contact with someone who is a bearer of the gospel of Jesus Christ and who they, in whose life they see some of the marks of Jesus Christ one step forward. It's only the first step, but what a great step is that? And you can see that there'd be another step. Why don't you come over for dinner and meet the family? And let's talk. Tell me about you. What's your background? What do you do? Where you come from? What do you believe? What's important to you in life? When the question comes in the other direction, you mightn't be very good at explaining things, but you say, this is what's important to me. This is who I am. This is what my family's like. Step two, they now not only know who you are, but they know, that you're, they know something of why you're who you are. And so on. So, so your job is not to get people to move the whole way. It's to take one step forward. And that's something, I mean, I'm, I'm a, up here at the front talking like I'm some big teacher and some great Christian as if I'm all the way up here or something. Let me tell you, I'm not. I'm just an ordinary guy like you. Um, and I find helping people grow in Christ difficult because people are difficult. And helping them make one step forward through the word of God is a great victory. And then another step. And then another step. That's what apprenticeship to Jesus Christ is like. And that's what making apprentices is like. It's helping everybody around you take one step to the right. Now, do you think you're clever enough to do that? Or gifted enough to do that? Or you're sitting there thinking, I like it in principle, actually. I like that idea. But I'm pretty ordinary and I'm not sure how I could ever get someone to move one step to the right. Well, this is why it's so wonderful that Jesus has said, I am with you to the end of the age. Um, Jesus uses ordinary people, weak people. Um, In fact, his whole message is a kind of weak message. It's a message about someone being crucified. You don't have to to take responsibility for that. You don't have to be clever or very gifted. You just have to have one thing, love for the person around you and want to see them take a step forward and share with them what you have and tell them honestly who you are and what you believe about the Lord Jesus. Now, as you get trained and equipped, and we'll talk about that later on, you'll do that more competently and more effectively as you get better at it. But this is not something for the super gifted or the super clever. It's for every apprentice of Jesus. So what do you want to say about this? I guess you want to say that if this is your mission statement as a Christian, it kind of clashes with a lot of the mission statements that we kind of have in our lives. We might have personal kind of unspoken mission statements, the things that are most important to us. Like if we were setting out our life to be like an agenda paper for a meeting, that's a horrific thought, isn't it? Um, If we're setting out our life to be like a meeting with an agenda paper, what would be the agenda items in your life? What would be one? What would be two? Usually one would be, say, family, caring for my family, providing for my family. Two might be having a safe and prosperous life and health. Three might be having a a job that's satisfying and that enables me to express myself. Uh, Number four might be doing things that I really enjoy and that give me satisfaction in life. Might be lowering that golf handicap. I'd love to do that one day. We'll have a whole series of agenda items, right, in our life that we think are important. We kind of subconsciously shape our life around. Kind of little personal mission statement in a sense, don't we? And the challenge of this, the challenge of the Great Commission, the challenge of what we're saying, it's pretty radical. It's saying that that's your agenda. Your agenda in life, the number one item is to to become an apprentice of Jesus Christ and to move to the right, to become more like him. Agenda item number 1A and help everybody else do that as well. Move all those around me one step to the right. And that's a different kind of ordering of our priorities. 
And for many of us as Christians, this is a kind of a key moment to think about our lives and ourselves. What do I think is important in my life? What's the truly important thing? Those other things are good. I'd love to lower my golf handicap. And I'd love to provide for my family. And I'd rather be healthy than sick. All these things are good things. But they're not the primary things. It's not the number one thing. That thing must be a desire and a commitment to apprentice ourselves to Jesus Christ and to bring other apprentices along with us. Because remember, becoming an apprentice of Jesus Christ is a radical step of leaving the old behind. If you wanted to keep your old life and have your old priorities, you're welcome to, but it leaves you back over here. If you want to become an apprentice of Jesus, I'm sorry, but your old life is gone. It's not an option to carry that with you anymore. You've got a new master, a new teacher, a whole new set of values and commands and lifestyles to live. And the wonderful news is it's so much way better than the way you used to live. That this new agenda and new life is the life we're always meant to live, friends. It's how we're meant to live, to become more like Jesus, to become the way God wanted us to be. So the hard message of this morning really is that to be a disciple maker, to be an apprentice maker of other people, really often requires a quite radical shift in our priorities, in what we think our life and agenda is about. If we think these are the chief things to obey Jesus and love him, then his command to make apprentices of those around us is a big, big call in our lives. Okay. Well, we're just about ready, I think, for a break and some morning, morning tea, we say in Australia. What do you say? Coffee break? Morning tea sounds kind of more romantic and quaint, doesn't it? So today, we're not breaking for coffee, we're having morning tea. And morning tea is going to be served over here in just a moment. But I just want to say one last thing. This is not only the mission statement of Jesus and of the apostles. It's not only the mission statement of each individual Christian. This is the mission statement of your church and of every church. And I love the fact that you've been really explicit about it. Grace Church exists to, got it written down here, to glorify God by making apprentices of Jesus Christ. I've just rewritten it slightly. To make apprentices of Jesus Christ across the street and around the world. That's wonderful that that's the agenda of your church because this whole process, this whole thing, is what is often called disciple-making. Sometimes in church circles, Christian circles, I've talked to a lot of people about this over the years, people see the, the activity of, of making a disciple, of making apprentices or of discipling someone as kind of being a sort of subset of this process somewhere. That discipling is what... Often people, when they use the word discipling, I'm discipling my friend, they normally mean... There's someone who's a newish Christian and I'm helping them get established and kind of solid in the faith. I'm discipling them. Or you'll say, I really look fondly back to that person who discipled me when I became a Christian. So we sometimes use the word to refer to kind of this bit here when people just become Christians. Or sometimes you use it to kind of refer to evangelism. So um, let's go out together and make disciples. It's kind of let's go out to the lost people and make disciples of them. Maybe it kind of belongs more back here. But really, what Jesus is calling us to do is to go to the lost wherever they are, no matter how far away they might be from him, or even close to him, but still resisting him, and help them make this move. Help them move to the right through the gospel of Jesus to become more and more like him. And so this whole process is disciple-making, is apprentice-making. And as we'll talk about later on as the day progresses, Pretty much everything you do in church life is in some way or other a function of making apprentices of Jesus Christ. If you're doing something in church life that isn't making an apprentice of Jesus Christ, well, then you've got to ask, what are we doing it for? And that's, why, that's our mission. Our mission is, I just read it, our mission is to make apprentices of Jesus Christ. And that's what we do on Sundays. It's what we do in our groups. We'll talk about all this as the day goes on and especially what this looks like in our groups and on Sunday, and in everything we do. But I think I've kind of yammered on to you in my Australian accent for probably long enough now. I'm just getting a sense that 
It feels like that's been really good. Any quick final questions before we break for some morning tea? We want to break just a couple of minutes early. Is this all making sense so far? Excellent. Now we'll use this language in this diagram. We'll sort of build it out as we go along. After morning tea, we're going to talk about how disciples are made. So we've talked about what an apprentice is and who does it. We all do, and that's a radical call for us. But how does it happen? How do we go about doing that? We talked about helping people take one step forward, but how do we help them make one step forward? That's what we'll get to straight after our break, and then we'll use this diagram to give some other ideas about how you can think about that. Tremendous. Now, Matt, why don't you tell us what's happening for morning tea? couple of instructions, okay? Um, so, well, but first, I hope you see, even in this first session, where there, there are some mechanics to learn here, uh, everyone. There's some specifics. But really what we just were given was a vision of the Christian life, weren't we? How the whole thing fits together. Uh, that's what was happening as you were teaching, Tony. We got a, I just got a picture of where everything fits in. So that's, that's an encouragement.